But this next story has me thinking about when I first started in this business. It was the summer of 1988. I spent the summer in Kenora, Ontario. It's a small community that feels more like Manitoba than Ontario. It's a summer tourism community. But back then, it was a big mill town. It's also a service center, a healthcare hub to Indigenous communities in the region. I worked from May until September for the Kenora Miner and News, the newspaper, many affectionately called Minus the News in that part. But we certainly changed that in the summer of 88. Now, the highlight for some was the big trade, the Wayne Gretzky trade to Los Angeles back, what was it, August 9th. But for me, it was a trip I took to an Indigenous community north of Kenora towards Red Lake, Ontario. By the way, the worst road my Toyota or any other vehicle that I have owned ever going into that community. And there I met some pretty incredible people. Shared a meal. (laughs) They shared a meal with a very green reporter that just showed up. Now, there had been a string of suicides, and I learned about a, a lot about addiction, about sniff, about the contradictions we see in a reserve system that restricts Noah. I'll say sentences residents to a life of reliance on the federal government. But, you know, as I soon discovered then and over the years, it's other levels of government as well. I saw racism by police officers and politicians and tourists. But it really took me years to figure out that that was built into the fabric of that community, like so many communities across this country institutional we call it systemic and fast forward to a month ago i'm on a flight from winnipeg to toronto to visit my son and next to me two nurses who had just been evacuated from a northern manitoba community they live in southern ontario their story was one of anger and frustration that police and indigenous leadership and ultimately their employer the federal government could not make their workplace safe Drug-fueled violence, a fact of life in many northern Manitoba communities. And they love, they love the members of the community. But some struggle with addiction and a history of violence, a history that is very difficult cycle to break. And then this week, back to Kenora, Thursday morning, the chief of the Ojibwe's of Onagaming, it's a community near Kenora. They allege that paramedics from Kenora waited on the outskirts of the reserve and it took 10 minutes to respond to a medical emergency before a man died. The chief of that reserve says a 30-year-old man died. His family had called 911. They tried to revive him by doing CPR and the paramedics remained in that ambulance on the outskirts of the reserve. There is an investigation underway. And sometimes I think of 1988 and 2022. And where are we now? Angela Mashford Pringle is an assistant professor and associate director 
Indigenous Health at the Dalilana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and she joins us this Friday night. It is an honor and a pleasure to join you. I wish it was under better circumstances. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for having me tonight. There's a lot of contradictions when it comes to the relationship between Indigenous peoples and government, isn't there? I discovered that years ago, and I continue to... Professor, I shake my head at all this, trying to, to, to get some sort of sense of this. And, and maybe there isn't any sense to this. Is there? I don't think there is. I, I mean, this history goes back before the creation of our country. And, you know, as we're moving forward and, and trying to get to 2022, where, you know, communities have clean drinking water, not temporarily, but permanently. Where I was listening to you talking about the roads, and honestly, you could go almost across Canada, and as you go into almost every reserve, there's potholes, and um, there's a book, and we say it all the time, where the pavement ends, because when you leave to go onto reserve, almost every community is dirt roads. So, you know, there's so many other uh, issues going on, and Having self-determination, people don't think about this. I teach this all the time. But, but, you know, you only have a nurse in a nursing station if you're in our flying communities. You don't have a choice of who your healthcare provider is. So when you're talking to people from the south or people from cities, they're just used to being able to go to an emergency room or go see their family physician or, you know, go see an optometrist or, or, or cardiologist when they need it. But that's not the truth for people living in some of our First Nations communities. And we, and I'll include the media in this, we rush to tell the story when something horrific happens, be it what happened in Kenora the other day Mm -hmm. or the massive story in Saskatchewan. But this is a life that I think most people not just in Canada, but worldwide would not accept. And as you say, drinking water to health care, to some of the mm. basics like pavement. And the other thing is like every spring we have um, drownings because First Nations don't have swimming pools to teach their children how to swim. Every spring we have children who fall in through the ice and they don't know how to swim or how to get themselves out to safety. And we don't have, you know, COVID just happened, and I, I was one of the authors for the Public Health Agency of Canada's report. And what we were hearing is they don't even have broadband digital access, so you can't do your medical appointments by, you know, Zoom or another software. So I'm not sure that Canadians actually know that. I'm not sure that it's been broadcast in such a way. And if you say, well, then you should move south, but now you're putting them into culture shock, right? Because they've never lived with what we're used to in Toronto or Ottawa or Winnipeg. And in fact, I've gone to northern Manitoba First Nations, remote First Nations, and I had one person tell me, you know, the first time they went into Winnipeg, it was the first time they realized that trees grow in a line in a city sounds crazy but when you're out and it's a bush a forest 
you're not seeing trees in a line. That's not how they grow naturally. But when you come to a city, that's how we grow them. And knowing what is a traffic light. Like, there's so much culture shock. Never mind the sticker shock. If you're, Food may be expensive in First Nations communities, but can you imagine having to come to a large city and have to pay our rents? in order to survive. And now you're not going to live next door to your mom or your cousins. And now you have to go for daycare, which you didn't have before. So there's a big, like challenging change and culture shock. If you're expecting first nations people to come South and just, uh, just today, I also learned there was a young woman from Nunavut who came South to get her education. She came to be a nurse and she was murdered in her first week in Ottawa. So I'm not sure that that's the answer either. We're not going to solve this entire issue here this evening, but I think the conversation that we have to start and continue to start and keep going is one that not only educates us and educates each other, but we have to start finding a way out of this jurisdictional blame game that, you know, one level of government blames the other and that ultimately we have to get to a point where there is not only reconciliation but self-government. And is there a roadmap to that? (laughs) I wish there were. (laughs) Um, I will say, you know, we have the British North America Act. Most people don't even remember or have not uh, thought about it because it came in in 1867. And what happens is you have the federal government being responsible for five groups, Indigenous people being one. Um, And that means that they're supposed to be looking after everything. And then in the British North America Act, it separates health and education to provinces. We didn't have territories at that point. And so... When you start to look at it, if the federal government is supposed to be responsible for First Nations, Métis and Inuit, uh, then they're supposed to provide health and education. But they they had never provided that. It's always been this discussion with provinces or territories to provide it. Um, unfortunately, it, it it's it hasn't changed, right? So that's back in 1867. You also have to remember we had treaties signed where uh, we were promised to have the best of healthcare and the best of education uh, for, you know, the use of the land, and that hasn't happened. And so then what you get to is 1979, there's the Indian health policy. And yes, I know it still has the terminology of our, our past, but it really essentially was saying that we wanted to build relationships between the province, the federal government, and First Nations. And then the other piece to that was to help build capacity in First Nations communities so they could be self-determining and leading to self-governance. We get health transfer policy. That's supposed to do one more step. But in fact, all it does is it, instead of being self-determining or self-governing, it's self-administration. So they give you some money to provide the the programs and services they tell you to provide. So you don't get to make decisions based on what your community needs. So when you were talking about suicides, you know, there's there's no way for them to take that money and put it towards uh, mental health or suicide awareness or, su- you know, something or prevention. Uh, they have to do the programs and services that the government says that money has to be at 
but they have the money. Yes, is transferred to the First Nation, but they don't get to use it in a way that's beneficial. What if they don't have a suicide crisis, but they have a diabetes crisis? What if uh, they don't have a diabetes crisis, but they have a Lyme disease crisis? They can't move the money around. The federal government won't allow it. And in 1995, they brought in the Self-Government Act, but it didn't have any teeth. Now, move forward, and we have uh, Jordan River Anderson passes away in 2005, and they come up with Jordan's principle because the province wouldn't pay for the things he needed in order for him to go home to Norway House. And so he, he lived and died in a hospital in Winnipeg, never seeing his traditional territories because of his medical conditions. And so they said, from here on in, provinces just provide the, the care needed, and then we will discuss the payment afterwards. Provinces continue to, in my opinion, ignore Jordan's principle. And sometimes they will give you the, the proper uh, care or services or apparatus that you need in order to go home, but not always. So and that's the issue. That's that, and that's the issue that continues. And ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, we will see you in court. And there is litigation going on. There are communities that are taking uh, those rights, and they are going to court, and they are winning in court. Angela Mashford Pringle from the University of Toronto. We need to continue this conversation in the future, but it started tonight.